standard issue for all women. On May the 25th, Ireland faces a momentous decision. Is the country going to allow women access to safe and legal abortions for the first time in its history? As people prepare to cast their vote in the nationwide referendum, we talk to 14 women from the fields of law, medicine, academia, politics, education, the arts and good old-fashioned campaigning about their work to repeal the 8th. In the first part of this two-episode special, we looked at the law as it currently stands in Ireland and its repercussions for women. In this second part, we look at the campaign to repeal the 8th and its chances of success, as well as asking what the future might hold for the women of Ireland and other countries where they are currently denied the right to reproductive care. We're all about deeds as well as words at Standard Issue. So in April, we got our asses on a plane and went over to Dublin to find out how the referendum campaign is going. Every vote will count in this referendum. Don't believe us? Let's take a look at some other referenda in recent Irish history. Oh, and unlike over here, the results are legally binding. In May 2015, the same-sex marriage referendum took place. And the good guys won. Hooray! But that certainly doesn't mean that yes voters should have any sort of confident swagger or be resting on their laurels right now. Not at all. Marriage equality passed by 61%. Like that, for me, in my book, that's not even two-thirds. That's not resounding. This is, let's call her Maeve. That's not her real name, and clearly her voice has been changed too. She's a teacher at a Catholic school, and so is understandably a little bit wary about coming out as pro-repeal. We are still quite, in parts, a conservative country. And that's marriage equality with a fair wind behind it, with lots of people coming out, all those men up the mountains in the middle of nowhere who have been themselves for as long as they can remember they came down and they voted. All those mothers voting for their sons, all... Sisters voting for their brothers, brothers voting for their sisters, brothers voting for their brothers. That was a hugely emotional campaign and we still didn't get to two thirds. Like 61% is wonderful, but it's not, for me, that's not a, like, it passed and that's great. I think this is far more contentious and I don't think we're over the line at all on it. I don't know. Divorce passed with 0.01 of a percent, something like 7,000 votes. Yeah. And that's 20 years ago. Divorce passed with 7,000 votes. It was shocking. Like, it was right down to the wire. If you need another illustration of just how tight 1995's referendum on divorce was, listen to this. The count difference in the divorce referendum in the 90s of the Ireland was such that one vote in each of the polling... In each of the... Polling stations. boxes... Yeah. ...had gone the other way, it wouldn't have passed. One vote in each box. That was Agnes Johnson from Doctors for Choice. My name is Ashlyn Cronin. I am a member of the Abortion Rights Campaign and now the Together for Yes referendum campaign. We're out here on the streets of Grafton Street today doing an information stall. So we're just looking to speak to members of the public who might have any questions about the referendum, any concerns that they might want to raise with us. So we're just um, here to provide information about the upcoming referendum, basically. We're actually getting a really positive response today. It can be very, very mixed, but in general, a lot of people who are supportive are really happy to see like a pro-choice presence on the streets like solidarity is a huge part of it and people come up like we often find people coming up and telling us their stories or telling us about situations and how they've been affected by the eighth amendment so it's really nice to be able to provide that safe space but you get a, a whole mix of things i mean a lot of people will come up and they'll tell us that they do think that it is time for change that the laws you know they they don't feel like the laws are fit for purpose people are coming they're telling us their stories they're telling us how they've been affected by the eighth amendment and they're telling us their personal stories which i mean it's it's harrowing and it's absolutely awful to hear these things but it only just kind of like it makes us 
see how important it is to be there and to provide this kind of safe space for people on the streets where they can because there's just been a huge culture of silence in Ireland for far too long. There's a huge amount of work going on at the moment and it's really going to be stepping up over the next couple of weeks. At the moment, there are canvases going on like across the country. So we have groups, Together for Yes have groups in every single county and there are a huge amount of groups in Dublin as well. So they're all, it's broken down in constituencies and we all have our own regional groups. The campaign in general, like we're out here today doing street stalls and providing information and we're doing that at the moment every Saturday and Sunday. That's going to be happening every single day uh, very, very shortly. There's activity going on every day as it is. You know, we were out flyering. Uh, we, we flyered all the commuter stops before work the other morning. And um, we got a really, really great response. And it was really nice to meet people at that point. And people w- walked off, you know, having a read of the leaflets, you know, and it was really, really great to be there and just to have a presence. But there are canvases going on every single day as well. There are multiple canvases going on in Dublin. People are knocking on doors. They're meeting people. They're answering their questions. Yeah, it's really great, and that's just gonna, it's just going to be more of what's going on already. In order to take the temperature of voters in Ireland, we asked all the women we chatted to about their relationship with abortion. While almost all of them mentioned Savita Halapanava, some of them had their own personal stories too. It was always presented as something for very slushy... It was like a, something... English girls did. Like it was really, definitely nothing a good Irish girl would do, ever. Very clearly remember, first time abortion was covered on our syllabus was in religion class. And I remember it was on a Friday, and in our religion book there was a chapter on abortion. And then on the last page, for the interest of balance, there was reasons why people think abortion is right and people why think abortion is wrong. And literally... The reason why people are pro-abortion, I think there were like two options. And it was basically like, oh, some people are selfish <laughs> or it's so bad. And whereas the reason why people think abortion were wrong was like, there was like 10 examples. Towards we had, let's have a discussion, finished in about five minutes. And the only people who suggested ideas why abortion is okay to the girls, but in my head, they were like real townies. So in Ireland the town and the country like country people slightly look down on town people so I think even then so I was about 17 at the time and I remember feeling so judgmental towards these two town girls because in my head I was completely abortion is wrong it's the worst thing in the world nah keep in mind this was like the late 90s we were all really smart educated girls were all going off to university it's a real academic school for me personally I'd never questioned that abortion was wrong it made me think of you know those loud girls in Grange Hill they be the type I, I remember like like as a lady and you're having chats with my granny and we'd be like it's awful you just give the baby up for adoption what's wrong you just give the baby up for adoption and I always had this this is so what an idiot I was I remember thinking I remember sort of my first boyfriend and being like in my head if I ever got pregnant, I would go to Switzerland. That's genuine was my plan. I'd go to Switzerland and just like convalesce and then give the baby to nuns. That was how sophisticated I was as a teenager. And then just genuine, I had my first boyfriend and then the idea of being pregnant became less this philosophical thing and more like a, a thing that could actually happen. And then I was like, oh, hang on. And then it slowly, slowly changed. 
when I reflect on my personal journey, I would have come out of a very Catholic secondary school in very rural Ireland. I'm from Longford, slap bang in the middle of Ireland. And I came out of that space absolutely, you know, completely confident in my morals and, you know, where I was, my place in the world. And one of those things was to be pro-life, to consider myself as somebody absolutely anti-abortion. It was something kind of regularly discussed in terms of fear and shame, I suppose, when I was in secondary school. And so in secondary school, we didn't really talk much about uh, the Eighth Amendment specifically, but we were told abortion was bad. And then if you fr- if you frame that in the overall lack of any kind of sexual health education received by young people and students in Ireland. You're really just being told how to think. So when I came out of secondary school and went into college, I was quite quickly in a space where that wasn't the case anymore. And I was very much challenged in the opinions that I thought I had, probably because I was a debater and um, I'd been very involved in debating in secondary school. And so, but the debating scene in college, you know, they were talking about abortion and, you know, like very controversial topics. And I had to kind of really opened my mind and one of the things I suppose that happened when I started college initially for my degree in law and sociology was the death of Savita Halepanavar. So I remember at the time you know as a 18 year old on campus who hadn't really gotten involved I suppose in social issues or certainly in the abortion rights debate at all before it suddenly became uh, the thing that people were talking about in particular very left-wing parties on campus were organizing around the issue talking about protests and I'd never even attended a protest before so how I first actually got involved was it didn't sit well with me that I didn't understand this issue so I kind of went undercover to kind of a socialist party meeting cloaked uh, in an invisibility cloak um, no I was I just I went I went to the and I you know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed at myself now that that, that I, I went in, in, in you know I was worried about going or who would see me or anything like this went to the back of the lecture hall and kind of sat down and hoped like nobody would see me kind of thing to be this real radical meeting and there was only about 15 people at it but Dr Sinead Kennedy who was a lecturer in Maynooth University at the time who went on uh, later that year in 2012 to set up the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment with Alva Smith. Uh, She was giving a talk about Savita but more broadly about abortion rights or lack of them in Ireland. And I came out of that meeting and I, I just couldn't believe, you know, what I'd heard in terms of just how people's realities were actually affected because I suppose upon reflection, the moral ground that I stood on was actually really shaky coming out of secondary school because we didn't really understand how the Eighth Amendment actually impacted women's lives and choices and how effectively it completely undermined how much we trusted them. When I finished my law degree, I ran for election to be the Student Union Welfare Officer and I suppose it, in between that time, I hadn't really had much engagement on the issue. Um, none of my friends, had, from my knowledge, had been directly affected or needed to um, travel for an abortion. But I was three weeks in the job as a students' union welfare officer, and I, you know, I remember I'd sp- spent loads of time I'd, on my own office, and I'd spent loads of time kind of decorating the walls with all this sex ed information, and like I became infamous for my wall of condoms, were basically like condoms from all over the world that I had like different colours and stuff like that on them, and I'd put I'd put them all around the walls and. So that sex ed was really important to me because I'd not received it in school and I couldn't believe it. But anyway, I got a knock on the door and it was in kind of mid-July or something. And this girl comes in and she sits on my couch and, you know, this candle going and stuff because I was trying to create this like nice kind of atmosphere where people could tell me what's going on so I could help them. She sits down and is super nervous and starts talking about how she's an accommodation issue with her landlord. But the more she talked, the more I realised that there was something else that she wanted to talk about. And it was after a while, she kind of, you know kind of paused and I said is there anything else that you want to talk about because I'd gone through like landlord kind of rules and stuff 
And she was like, yeah, actually there is. And it's something I haven't talked about with anyone else. And then she told me her story. Her story wasn't one of regret for the fact that she had to travel for an abortion, but she was sitting there in front of me super upset because she hadn't been able to tell her mum. This person sitting in front of me completely vulnerable because she had information that she didn't want to hide anymore, and not vulnerable because of the decision that she'd made. That was stand-up comedian Gronya Maguire, followed by Sheena Carhill from Students for Choice, both candidly admitting that their attitude to abortion was very different when they were younger. Also, you probably spotted the word until in those. Yeah, that came up a lot. We get calls all the time from people who tell us, I'm completely pro-life. I'm completely against abortion. I never would have gotten abortion. I never would have supported abortion until. Until my 14-year-old got pregnant, Mm. until my husband died, until my husband was put in prison, until I was diagnosed with cancer, until our four-year-old got leukemia, until we both lost our jobs. I was totally against abortion until I needed an abortion. And that's what makes this so tricky is that nobody knows what they would do until they're in that situation. That was Mara Clark, founder of the Abortion Support Network. And here's author Claire Hennessy talking about how people's actual relationship with abortion isn't always reflected in fiction about abortion. My most recent young adult novel is called Like Other Girls, and it looks at that so often used phrase, you're not like the other girls, as in you're special, you're quirky, you're a human being. And what I wanted to look at is, I suppose, what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a young woman in Ireland today, and what it means to essentially be in a situation where you do not have access to the full range of reproductive rights and how incredibly unfair, how incredibly frustrating um, and how just rage-making that is. But also with funny bits, you know, abortion and angst, but then also there's a school musical in there. I'd wanted to write something about abortion for, for quite a long time, but I didn't want to write something that was just an issue novel, you know, in the, in that sense that I think sort of sometimes YA often is, where it's, oh, here's a character with a problem. Let's look at them work through that problem. And then you, dear reader, will have learned a very valuable lesson. I wanted to make sure that there was also enough of a story at the heart of it. I read so many testimonies uh, from women who, who traveled. I also, as a sort of a self, <laughs> self-inflicted punishment, also did look at the quote marks pro-life arguments particularly which is touched on in the book testimony from women who are really invested in shaming other women who have chosen to have abortions and it's, it's very difficult to watch I think still in Ireland we, we have to preface everything by going now of course nobody ever wants to have an abortion it's a terrible thing and it's awful and it's dreadful you know what what actually might be worse is bringing a child into the world that you cannot care for or you're not interested in caring for, a child that you're not going to love. I think that is a much more horrible thing to do, a much more irresponsible thing to do. And we kind of don't say that enough. Abortion, I think, is a very difficult thing to tackle 
dramatically. It is often seen in fiction as kind of a very sad thing. It is, you know, something that must be punished so that either you consider having an abortion, but then you don't go through with it because you couldn't possibly give the child up for adoption and you're very happy. Or you have the abortion, but then you feel really guilty about it and it's all terrible. Obviously, we can kind of look at that and we can go, okay, it's clearly everybody who is writing these kinds of stories must be really approaching things from kind of an anti-choice perspective. And actually, I think it's more to do with the fact that as a kind of narrative arc, if you like, woman decides to have an abortion has it, experiences relief as her main emotion, which is what 95% of of women report. That's not a great story, you know? (laughs) I mean, the movie Knocked Up is a great example. You know, you're thinking, there is no reason why you should be having this child, except that it'd be a very short movie if you went, actually, let's just, let's just have an abortion, you know? When we were in Dublin, we went to the Irish Parliament to meet TD... That's MP to you and me, Kate O'Connell, to find out why repealing the eighth is the reason she went into politics. I had my first child in 2010 and a healthy 30, 31 year old. And I never expected to go into my 20 week scan and to be told my child had a profound birth defect. So I sat there as a married woman who was wanted to have children, educated. I'm a pharmacist by profession. My husband's medically trained too. And we were faced with this position. Now, for me, the issue was that there was a lack of information given to me at the time of the diagnosis. Doctors were prohibited from really giving me too much information. There's two forms of what my son had. There's the physical, um, which is a condition called gastroschisis. But if it's coupled with a genetic disorder, it is classed as a fatal fetal abnormality. So I waited a period of nine days waiting for the results of an amniocentesis. So in that period of time, I became the woman in Ireland who was looking at travelling to the UK. As it turned out, my child didn't have the genetic abnormality, just a physical. He's now seven and a half and a healthy seven and a half year old. But his chances of survival were very low. Both my husband's family and I have doctors on both sides, based in the UK and in America and Australia. So we had lots of experts to help us in our personal situation. And it got me thinking about people who had no one, who had no access to information, who had no clinical background, and I suppose the complications associated with travelling. It's a very lonely place, being diagnosed with a child that has a birth defect. I distinctly remember my own diagnosis and that process I went through in the week where I remember feeling so alone even though I was married with a husband who's very understanding. But I remember just, I suppose, that it was my body and within it was this baby. And I felt so responsible for the situation I was in and the guilt associated with it. Did I do something wrong? Did I not take enough folic acid? Did I not rest enough? All of these things were all within my body, my head, my womb. And it really made me start thinking about this issue in a far deeper way than I ever, ever had before. So the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act of 2013, a very prominent member of my party, lose the party whip. She happened to be based in my constituency. I ran against her in the 2016 election and took the seat. 
and from the point I got elected, which is just over two years ago, I have worked night and day and getting this to where we are today. The second largest party, which is Fianna Fáil, over 50% of their voting members voted against even having a referendum. So they actually didn't even want democracy to happen. So forget the issue. And I feel very strongly about this because when you are an elected representative, you're not here to represent your own personal views. You are there to represent the views insofar as is possible of the people that voted for you. The mood has changed so much in the two years. I mean, I would have spoken to my party at the time of the general election and said, this is a key issue. And I was constantly told it's not. For some reason, there's there's almost like an allergy to it in here, or there was two years ago. And we're still on that journey. But it's taken two years for people to actually break down that barrier that, that allows them to actually think about this in a deep way. Now, there's certain people who are on the anti-choice side that have no problem going on to the media and going, I never read the committee report. I never looked at the Citizens Assembly. I never read anything. But yet I'll give you my view. <laughs> and that, for me, is very difficult because um, that's just ignorance. And we even had one um, really interesting contribution to the chamber on the Eighth Amendment, at times I thought, am I in the wrong speeches? Where one particular gentleman from an opposition party decided to list out all the women we had in good jobs in Ireland, making out that we were nearly getting on fine as women. <laughs> and he listed out a couple of large multinationals of which women were at the top of, in relation to abortion. I even heard a female <laughs> member of my own party saying, life has moved on since the Magdalene laundries and contraception is available now as if the past could be compartmentalised and that she somehow was living in this new era that I don't know if any other woman in Ireland is living in. <laughs> there's also a sensitivity. And then there's obviously the church. And if you're brought up in a situation where the church has a huge influence on your life and you've never thought about it, or you, you weren't a deep thinker, and next thing, you know, all that you've based your beliefs on is ripped from under you. It can be very difficult for people. In Dublin, there's no ignoring there's a referendum happening. The lampposts are covered in posters, people on the streets are handing out leaflets. And when it comes to the no campaign, those that are anti-choice, misinformation is rife. The women you're about to hear getting rightly furious about the no campaign... Anna McHugh and Agnes Johnson from Doctors for Choice, teacher Eva McArdle, author Claire Hennessy, and Sheena Carhill from Students for Choice. I obviously respect everyone's opinion. I think a big thing coming from the medical community is that this isn't about winning, this isn't about losing, this isn't about sides. I think, you know, we're all pulling in the same direction here. We all want to do the least amount of harm. But the one thing that I will call out is when there is false statements and there are quite a lot of these one for example that one in five pregnancies ends in abortion in the UK which is false for a number of reasons one being that the number of pregnancies is unknown you just can't quantify the number of pregnancies in the UK and Ireland because there are many miscarriages that are unreported also that number the one in five includes all of the Irish abortions that are happening so the denominator that is being used there to say one in five is grossly underestimated therefore it's coming across as a, as a huge and false number 
Yeah, and I think of the specifically the posters, the really important issue is is the posters that are portraying if you don't want abortion to happen at six months, vote no. And these posters are particularly outside of maternity hospitals, as you can imagine, that can be really, really upsetting for women and patients that are attending, that have had complications of their pregnancies or miscarriages. That's another thing that no one is proposing and is not to do at all with the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. I was in the Rotunda Hospital this morning, one of the main maternity or women's health hospitals in Dublin, doing uh, an extra exam with the Royal College of obstetrics and gynecology and there are posters quite graphic posters of that what Agnes was referring to you know stillbirths and everything at six months I just find it grossly insensitive I think it's missing the point we're, we're trying to stop the harm of women with this I feel livid about the the no propaganda actually um particularly there's one of um a, a very heavily pregnant uh woman with um a painting on her on her stomach which is normally done for like just before you give birth and you have a, a little party um a mother rising it's called here and uh they paint the the bump and it's it's a great celebration of motherhood and of and it, i think it's quite an old feminist uh, pagan ritual and i'm livid that that's that image is used and said if you disagree with um an abortion after at six months vote no and i mean that's clearly wrong who who carries a pregnancy to six months and then says ah oh, no i don't think i will I think I'll I'll just abort, you know, really and truly. There's just no there's no compassion there at all. Um and I think it's really awful for our children to look at. So my almost five year old hasn't noticed yet or hasn't asked me any questions. But I'm really kind of annoyed, very annoyed that they're so graphic and um just so, so offensive. They they really offend me. I have reported a few the really graphic ones they breach public order act uh, so i have reported a few but um yeah there there's far too many of them and they've been very well funded from the states i think and they're they're misleading they're false and they're offensive yeah so i'm livid it's really interesting to see the the yes posters are very sort of calm and reasonable and rational and then the no posters are kind of like don't kill babies license to kill if you're uncomfortable with murdering a six month old baby don't you know sort of vote no and it's like that's interesting that's blatant misinformation there and uh, my personal favorite which i think makes it very clear that the uh the sort of the anti-choice side do not have a clue is that don't be like England you don't want to be like that one in five babies are aborted over there in that England it is a very interesting thing when you sort of look at kind of anti-choicers going oh well you know if the eighth amendment you know if 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 it hadn't been for that you wouldn't be here today and it's like that's interesting. Uh, what kind of a relationship do you have with your mother? You know, it's a very, it's a very strange argument, and it does seem to be that you know this sense that the only reason that a child might be brought into the world in Ireland is because abortion was illegal. There's a lot of propaganda associated with the pro-life and love both campaigns. Um, yeah, it's 
absolutely manipulative. It's absolutely emotive. There's a lot of graphic imagery. They're very much playing on, you know, pictures of fetuses and really blowing them up, obviously, and, and all this kind of stuff. Like, the misinformation point is really important here because the proposed legislation that the government have put forward from the Department of Health in Ireland about what would come after the Eighth Amendment being removed is about a 12-week rule, right? So, first of all, when they start talking about disability, it's such a red herring and it's really um, frustrating for everybody who's on the pro-choice Together for Yes side because you can't even diagnose disability before 12 weeks. It's just not a thing. The reality of those posters and the way they give information is very much to confuse you enough on the issue and plant the seed of doubt required for you to want to remain with the status quo. So yeah, that's what the Yes campaign are up against. And while the streets of Dublin are seemingly coming down on the Yes side, that's just one city in the whole country. I've been canvassing in Dublin um, Central. It's the this constituency in the, the in the centre of Dublin, obviously in the north centre of Dublin, and we've been having a very easy time. People are overwhelmingly voting yes in this constituency, and the main answer is of course, of course, and thank you for giving up your time. It's it's really really lovely, but I know canvassers in other parts of the country aren't having the same sort of across the board experience and I think definitely just like in marriage equality it would be it would be a much harder battle to fight outside of the outside of Dublin yeah for those in more isolated parts of the country campaigners are harnessing the power of social media vital for grabbing a young audience I think social media has been fantastic for this. Teenage girls, it's a very vulnerable time in anybody's life. Twitter, it's a space for women to connect with each other and to define their worth and what they want and their voice. And I I hope, I don't know if I'm just projecting this, but I feel like a lot with the, the activism for the current referendum has come from young girls, young women. And I think that's been really inspiring to watch. So I think there's a movement in the past few years of young girls maybe be more confident and sort of reclaiming their narrative and their story and then being able to connect to each other as well because you know if you're just like the one person in the one town who thinks that to be able to go on Twitter and find other like-minded people I think that's helped a lot But what about the people that aren't on Twitter? Children born out of Magdalene laundries are walking around they exist still people who look into their own families and they know of the girls that disappeared and never came back People, my mother's generation, she's 70, know what happened, especially in rural Ireland, when you became pregnant. And my mother's generation, there's almost a denial that that happened so recently. So it's going to be much easier in 50 years to discuss this. But you have to be very sensitive to the fact that families that actually had a part in this through no fault of their own by just being Irish bought into some of the carry-on that went on and now they're examining oh my god how did we fall for all of that clearly in the same way that not all of the UK's older people voted Brexit not all people of that generation in Ireland think abortion is wrong I feel as if some of the older doctors are actually the ones who are more passionate about it because um, and it doesn't matter whether they're male, female. I think people have some people have seen so much. Some of our more senior colleagues seen so much of the harm, and you know they rallied against the Eighth Amendment in 1983, and they're actually just exhausted. They're like, I can't believe we're still here 
I can't believe we're still fight. We have to even fight for this. It's 2018. It's not just a young movement. There's definitely a lot of people behind this. So yeah, there are divisive lines. And these often only become blurred when people are personally affected by the issue. The thing is, though, a lot of people probably have been affected. They just don't realise it. The key to this campaign for me is making people realise that if there's three people a day taking termination pills and nine travelling, well, it's unlikely somebody in your family hasn't had a termination. The Eighth Amendment doesn't protect women. All women. Women are in, have been damaged by this in the Constitution. And when I think of the effect this had on me over those nine days waiting, and the effect it had on my husband, and I don't live in a, a house where my husband like has this protective role, but when your wife is expecting a baby and she's physically very obviously pregnant and you have to look at her going, have I really, really to fly to England to deal with this situation? Men can be very helpless. And I think another key part of this debate is men. Men standing up for the women of Ireland and that we're not going to continue exporting this problem. We asked each of the women we spoke to the same question. How do you think it's going to go? Here are their predictions. Cautiously optimistic. Yeah, everyone, especially nowadays, in their own echo chamber of social media is so dangerous for that, even though it's great for getting a message across. So even if you think, oh my God, this is great, this is definitely getting over the line and it's so progressive, it's not. There's silent majorities, there are people who will show up at the polls every time but won't speak their mind out. And I think they're the vast majority of people, you know, the the people who don't say anything. So you don't really know. People are very tentative to say what side, for want of a better phrase, to come down on. But it's gaining a bit of momentum. A lot of doctors are behind this and we want to be allowed to provide this care. And even doctors from different specialties that won't be directly related support and understand why this is needed. So there is a lot of support from the medical community. There is a lot of doctors out there more than willing to commit to this and to provide this healthcare. A year ago, I would have said no way. But now, between the Citizens' Assembly and the volume of women who've come forward to talk about their experience of abortion, and there's some brilliant Facebook pages and websites, um, stories of the Eighth, In Her Shoes, The Exile Project, all these places where women are hosting their experience of travel and what it was like, I think we are starting to win the case. Every single vote counts. And we all voted yes for marriage equality in my family. But I couldn't tell you what my family are going to vote. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you at all. I know what all my friends will vote because, you know, we, our friends tend to be a reflection of ourselves. I'm praying. I'm praying it goes. It goes over the line because, God, we need it. Like, come on. It's, the mod- it's modern. This is modern Ireland. Like, we need it. But I, it's, not, it's not a given. It's not a given at all. I can be really annoying. I'm the really obnoxious woman who, like, one o'clock, everybody's out having drinks, all subtly trying, so, what do we think about the exciting year for women, guys? <laughs> like, I'm the worst. Um, that sounds like the best. <laughs> it's like, hey, guys, everybody buzzing. Okay, women's rights. Um, <laughs> so I was hanging out with my auntie, and she's lovely, really cool, really, like, one of my favourite aunties, and I don't know how 
it sort of came up. I said, well, obviously, I'm going to be home a week before the referendum to try and volunteer. And she was like, oh, does it really matter that much to you? And I was like, of course it does. And then she paused and I was like, oh, no, oh, no. And she just said, yeah, it's very complicated, isn't it? And my heart sank because I didn't want to go. It's Easter. I didn't want to get into this huge bit. I was like, easy. And I just just was like, is it complicated or just like really, really simple and obvious? (laughs) Is it? Is it complicated? And she was like, oh, there's lots of things to think about. And I was like, well, it's either you trust women or you don't. I mean, that's the essence of it and she was like mm, I suppose so that's my worry when I saw like my aunt who's like in her 50s really cool woman and she was still because the thing is the, the anti-choice site gets have so much money because the far right in America are giving them so so much money and then they also have the benefit of like a hundred years of the Irish church you know the brainwashing that that's done so I might I hope I hope I'm wrong but a horrible part of me think it's going to be like women's Brexit mm. like that is my fear that it's just, you know, like all those years about anti-EU, you know, and you've got a certain amount of time to try and fight against it with facts and figures. So I hope, I hope I'm wrong. And I don't, I can't even imagine what it'll be like, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm, I'm correct. But I'm, I'm worried. I think it's going to be a lot tighter than, you know, us in our bubble would hope. It changes every day how I think the referendum is going to go. And it depends on where I am in the country. But after seeing the fundraiser that Together Free has had online this week where they have raised nearly half a million euro in the space of a couple of days, I think it's going to be very close, but I think we can win. I just really hope that it will go through. I know that there are more religious sensitivities in Ireland than there are here, but there certainly seems to be a groundswell of support for choice. Let's keep our fingers crossed. If they can repeal the eighth amendment in Ireland when it comes to them writing their abortion legislation hopefully maybe they'll look at the Isle of Man and think do you know what little old Isle of Man did it maybe we could too something's changed I can see after myself following for many years there's something different I always say I don't want to give too positive an impression that then people don't vote so you have to stress please still get out and vote and take that extra step that's really important So I'm very scared at the moment about May 25th. Um, I think that even though, you know, most of the people that I know are uh, sensible humans who are not complete hypocrites, I think that there's an awful lot of people who just, I suppose, are willfully refusing to engage with the facts. And there are people that seem to think that voting no will make Ireland abortion free and no country in the world is abortion free and no country in the world ever has been and I mean anybody who has studied the history of medicine will be very aware that the terminating of pregnancies has always taken place and the difference now is that there are medical methods that are more reliable and they are safer for women I personally think that's a good thing, guys. You couldn't judge any referendum at this point. It's a process. That's how I see it. Maybe I'll be wrong in the end. We had the Citizens citizens Assembly. I saw how the membership went in, the language, how they got information, how they absorbed it, simulated it, made their decisions. 
when the report came out, people were like, oh, I can't believe the citizens said this. And I was going, I can believe every bit of it because I knew the evidence would lead to this. And the same happened with the committee where people went in with one view and I knew, I knew a point would come and I could see the room evolving. I could see my own colleagues going, oh my God, there is no test for rape. And the process will take longer for the Irish people but I think it will happen. I think that middle ground, so there's about 50% of people that I would imagine are in that, you know, with the stats are showing such as my imagination. They're there. They just want, to, they haven't decided yet. And those people, I believe, will come round when they take time to study it. And they take t- and there's no way of... For some people, it's it's just about choice or it's just about a decision or it's just about whatever. But for other people, it is a very deep issue based on the way they're educated and brought up. It's not that they're ignorant. It's just that this is what they're indoctrinated um, with. But I think it's going to be close. I'm really hopeful, but I'm afraid to get my hopes up um, too much. I think Dublin will be fine. But outside of Dublin, I'm I'm concerned I'll be so happy if it goes through and so devastated if it doesn't, I guess. I'm just hopeful. I'm going home again next week. And actually, a colleague of mine said this lately. When I'm not there, I think we're doomed. Like, when I'm not there and I listen to RTE and I read, you know, I'm reading the Irish Times dutifully or I'm reading Twitter... And, and especially because I'm involved in the, in the legal side of things. And one of the great weapons that, you know, they managed to get an article in the Constitution, right? One of the, thing that the things that the other side are very good at is, that it is spreading legal misinformation. Um, and so because that's part of my job, I watch that and it, gives, it makes me just so anxious. But then I go back... And the atmosphere, because I was—I remember being there for marriage. Not, I wasn't active in the marriage equality campaign, but I remember being there, actually doing abortion stuff at the same at the same time. And um, the atmosphere is so different. I mean, I was in—maybe they will listen to this—but I was in a church uh, last autumn at a at a family anniversary mass. Uh, I don't normally go to church. And uh, I was chatting to friends of my mother's and to my aunts, and they were all telling me that they're going to vote yes. I was standing like half a foot from the altar, and they were sort of saying, well, how's the campaign going? And I was kind of, maybe we shouldn't be standing under this massive crucifix. I think the chances we will actually lose are very, very, very slim. It would, it would take some, some landslide or some very dirty trick, I think for that to happen but even if we did lose it wouldn't be a loss right because the politicization the yeah. mo- like the the new transformative message and this, the same is with marriage equality people can look around and see you know i'm not the only one who feels like this lots of people think this is unacceptable lots of people are willing to give up their weekends their evenings and so on to march in the streets over this so if if it is lost, i mean divorce referendums were lost before for example if it is lost they'll fight it again Right. And, you know, especially because this is an intergenerational campaign. So you're looking at people like, for example, Alva Smith, who's the head of Together for Yes, or you're looking at Anne Rossiter, who was um, involved in the Irish Women's, founder of the Irish Women's Abortion Support Group that facilitated pe- people to travel. Or you look at Gretty Horgan, um, in the, the, who's been very active on um, 
uh, the north of Ireland and who was uh, involved in the Women's Right to Choose campaign in, in the 70s and 80s, like they've been at this for like 30, 40 years, right? And so it's not really for me to say we might lose and that'd be terrible and then we'd have to give up, right? Because they didn't. And so with that, that kind of intergenerational support is really important too. I think that we can win it, uh, but I think that it needs more people to get on the ground, to get involved with their local campaigning groups, to get out of Dublin and to get down to those local areas across rural Ireland and actually have those conversations. Those conversations aren't happening on local radio, they're not happening in local newspapers and they're not happening around kitchen tables unless it's brought up by somebody. And I think we're calling on a lot of young people to be part of that kind of conversation starter and just say, how's everybody feeling on this May you know, referendum thing? And let the conversation flow and then address some people's concerns about what might be coming up. I think we're going to repeal the Eighth Amendment and it's going to be amazing. Please vote, please come home to vote. All right, let's be Pollyannas for a moment and assume the yes vote is going to land its fish. What's next? Here's Mairead Enright, Senior Lecturer at Birmingham Law School specialising in feminist legal studies, law and religion. The government can't pass any legislation at the moment yet and they can't debate it yet because it it would be unconstitutional. Until the Eighth Amendment is gone, you can't have abortion on wider grounds. But they have published heads of a bill as an indicator to the electorate as to what they would pass if the referendum is successful. And those heads of bill are the product of deliberations in Citizens' Assembly, which was a special forum of 99 randomly selected citizens chaired by a judge who heard experts from both sides. So they came up with various proposals. Those were then fed through an all-party parliamentary committee, a joint Oireachtas committee, and then the government has sent those to the Attorney General and come up with this, this bill. The reason I'm going through that in so much detail is one of the things you will hear is, well, what will replace the eighth? We don't know what will replace the eighth. Actually, we do in fairness, and I don't often say in fairness to the Fine Gael government, but in fairness they have said what it will be. And so they've said up to 12 weeks you would be able to get a termination on request from one doctor, and the doctor's only role would be to date the pregnancy. Um, You would have to wait 72 hours between the certification, where the doctor says yeah, you're kind of good to go, and the actual procedure itself. Now that's more liberal than here. I know the minister wants that to happen at a GP surgery level, and that has pros and cons. I guess the, the, the pro is that it's a normalisation of the service. If you have the right doctor, it's seeing the doctor you normally see, who knows your history, it's local care. For a lot of people, the stigma of abortion, I think, will last. There may be problems with conscientious objection. So we want to see how that 12 weeks thing will work. But if it passes, same as here, 90 plus percent of people have terminations early on in pregnancy. That would deal with our travel issue and it would deal with the illegal uh, importation of the abortion pill issue and that would make a huge difference to women's reproductive lives. After 12 weeks then, for the more difficult cases, your possibilities are more limited. So there isn't a rape ground because we managed to persuade Parliament over time that interrogating women about how they got pregnant probably isn't a great idea. The hope is that women who have become pregnant through sexual violence will access under the 12 weeks proposal. I'm a little bit worried that 12 weeks won't be enough for everybody and that there's no statutory provision for increasing that limit in in certain cases. We kind of wait and see. We're not at the back and forth parliamentary debate stage yet. But then after 12 weeks, it would be risk to life, risk of serious harm to health 
and fatal fetal abnormalities, so cases where the fetus is, in the opinion of two doctors, is likely to die in the womb or in the course of birth or immediately after birth. Now, that's not a disability ground, and it doesn't cover even very, very desperate and difficult cases where, for example, the baby may be born but will not live for very long, very short, difficult, painful life and so on. The risk-to-life ground is good because at the moment you have to show real and substantial risk to life, and some doctors think you have to wait until the fetus' heart stops beating. The risk of serious harm to health I do worry about. It's good that it means physical and mental health, but I'm not quite sure what serious will mean. And very few European countries put that qualifier serious in, and I'm not sure what its function is besides a kind of rhetorical sense of, oh, only women who are really sick now, no messing, will be able to get abortions. Because by definition, right, because we know even from the statistics here, we know that by definition, if you are looking for an abortion after early pregnancy, it's because something else has gone wrong. Not not in all cases, of course, but in, in many cases. And so my, my worry is for women who may find their access delayed or that they are unable to affect access and they find themselves kind of caught on that cusp between the 12 weeks and the health ground. My reason for slipping in the, the critique is not to say don't vote repeal. Obviously vote repeal, because without repeal nothing can change. Vote repeal because we want to normalise the abortion legislation and subject it to the same flawed lawmaking process that we use for every other <laughs> important moral issue. We don't want to think about this, but if it does all go tits up, what happens next? I think in the event of a no vote, our first and immediate concern is probably going to be with all those who are still travelling and make sure that we support those to the best possible extent. But politically, we are committed as an organisation and many other organisations are absolutely committed to getting rid of this amendment. So if we get a no, obviously we will respect and accept the current opinions of people who voted. But what we will be reflecting on is where is it that we did not educate you enough mm. about this, the impact that this has? Because we genuinely believe that when you have all of the information about how this affects people and how it doesn't have to affect you, you just have to allow somebody else to make the decision. I think when people can hear it in that frame that we can win this referendum, but if it doesn't pass, that we will, we, you know, we will review and we will reflect and we will help those who are still travelling and then we will come at it again. And we have been 35 years at it, obviously older than me, I'm 25, and I'm absolutely committed to making sure that that we demand a better Ireland for all those women and people who have to travel. And if that means going at it again, then absolutely I will. It will be close, but I think it will pass. I hope it will pass. We'll have to go at it again. (laughs) And again, and again, until it's done. And whether the 8th is repealed or not, Ireland faces the same issues as, well, the rest of the world. When I was a child, when I was younger, to get your hands on some pornography, it kind of required a lot of effort. I'll be honest with you. Like, as girls, we didn't normally see it. Boys, there might be a videotape in somebody's house. I remember my dad found some um, magazines in the shed when I to my brother. Like, But there'd be stuff it was talked about, but not really that hugely available. Mm. Now it's everywhere. It's in everyone's pocket. It's there freely available. And they're watching it. And parents don't know how to talk to their children about that. That's a huge problem, I think. I think parents are doing very well and I think parents have improved a lot in how they talk to their children, how they deal with their children. But I think there's a whole load of stuff that is now rearing its head that they've never been taught how to deal with it themselves. So, Sex education probably was revamped about 20 years ago, but it was never, like, the notion of a sex life or a happy sex life or sex as being part of a marriage um, and the idea of even living together. 
like that in the last 20 years that was taboo for a very long period of time but there are these overhanging feelings about things there are these um silence has been a huge enemy in this country for a very long time and we haven't we haven't been taught that our bodily functions are totally normal you know when women get pregnant where do you think where do you think we all came from you know and it's it's quite shocking that we just haven't been good at that conversation. It's been linked in because we had a huge amount of church influence here for such a long period of time. What's happening now is marvellous. It's really, mar it's a frightening time. It's like we're all coming out of the dark into the light and we're all just kind of a bit, our eyes are hurting. We're like, oh God, what do we do next? This is a massive opportunity. If we get this right, can you imagine the generation of children we will produce, be producing in 20 years time, the families they will be having, the relationships they will be having. If we teach them about consent and we teach them about respect we teach them about healthy sex lives and a sex life is normal it's like it's part of your life that they'll be normal that, that, that they'll be wonderful for, for society in general certainly the kind of stigma around sexuality i think has produced a deeply traumatized society what i find actually really moving I don't have any kids of my own. A lot of my friends are raising kids in Ireland. And when I see how hard they're working for them to grow up fully accepting of themselves and feeling absolutely loved all the time, I am almost crying a little bit now. It is just so moving. The guilt, or what we kind of jokingly call the guilt, is there. There is that kind of Irish, like, don't get above your station thing of maybe it's no harm. Maybe it's no harm if you feel a little bit guilty all the time. Maybe it keeps us in line. But, but aside from that... I think people are deliberately making families in ways that just leave, insofar as they possibly can, a lot of that just miserable traumatisation of sexuality behind. There have been some really interesting interviews in the Irish media with older women who explain that they voted, yes, they voted to insert the Eighth Amendment in 1983. And they voted because they thought it was about babies, they thought it was about life, and they thought it was about the moral duty to bring your children into the world. Why would a good woman think that this was an OK thing to do? Why would a good woman not be ashamed of the idea of abortion? And so, of course, that has a lot to do with the legitimacy that is given to a very conservative form of Catholicism in Ireland. So I don't want to say Catholicism, capital C. If you grew up in, a, in the kind of way that we did, we all know people who are devout Catholics and who will be voting yes to repeal and who have been very important in the fight for reproductive rights, were very important in the fight for contraceptive access and so on in the 70s. What we're seeing, in, and this is not me standing up for the Catholic Church, this is me standing up for a particular generation of Catholic women who taught me a lot I think what you're seeing, and you have seen since the 90s, since the child sex abuse scandals, you're seeing in particular older women saying, look, the reason I stick with this church is because of the message of compassion. And I'm going to take the message of compassion, I'm going to live that out, and I'm going to ignore the rest of it insofar as I possibly can. And then after them, you're seeing a younger generation. Um, I'm not exclusively younger. I mean, Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland, is regularly in trouble with the Vatican for making the same kinds of arguments, who are saying, well, look, if I'm going to stay in this organisation and baptise my children into it, then I want change. You're seeing, you are seeing a, a renegotiation of the terms of being Catholic in Ireland. And this referendum, I think, is as much a kind of a pushback against who gets to be the kind of moral centre of the country, who gets to be the moral voice of the country. It's certainly not the bishops anymore. Thanks, Mairead. It's not just women in Ireland being denied access to safe and legal abortions. It's happening all over the world, including some places very close to home. Oh, hey there, Isla Man. My name's Stephanie Kelsey, and I'm a spokesperson for the Campaign for Abortion Law Modernisation on the Isle of Man, CALM. CALM was founded two years ago because 
abortion on the Isle of Man currently, the abortion law is very restrictive, uh, which means that women on the Isle of Man have to either travel to the UK for an abortion if they can afford to pay for it, or they can order safe but illegal tablets. These, these tablets are safe. They're um, on the recommended list for the World, World Health Organization, but on the Isle of Man they're illegal and they get stopped at customs. So we formed a group to try and lobby politicians to get the law changed. My girlfriends and I, you, you know, you'd, you'd have chats about what would you do? What would you do if you found yourself that, in that situation? But having said that, not many people are aware. I think that because abortion is so restricted on the Isle of Man, that makes it even more of a taboo. And so it's sort of a circle then. What's been really great is that in the two years since CALM started, people have been getting more and more open about talking about it. I think we are breaking taboos. And Dr. Alex Allenson is one of our members of the House of Keys, which is our government. When he stood for election, he actually had it as part of his manifesto that he wanted to reform abortion law on the Isle of Man. That was really brave of him to do that. But what was brilliant was because he made it so clear at the beginning, then when he got elected with a, a, um, a big majority compared to the other candidates in his area, he could say, OK, I've been mandated here to do this. From then, as I say, taboos are being broken. People are more and more open. And certainly we're now seeing a lot of public support for this new reform bill, which we've got. I say we've got, we haven't quite got it yet. Uh, Dr. Allenson got permission from Tinwald to draft a bill. And what's great about it is that rather than copy and paste some legislation from another jurisdiction, he and the legal drafters have come up with a new bill, which if it goes through, could make the Isle of Man's abortion law the most progressive in the British Isles. In the UK and on the Isle of Man, abortion is a crime. In the UK, the exception to that is your 1967 Act. So obviously most women fall into that. And on the Isle of Man, abortion is a crime under our criminal code. And our current abortion law means that women, well, it's just really difficult for women to get an abortion on the Isle of Man. Mm -hmm. For example, um, if they've been raped, then they can access an abortion on the Isle of Man, but they have to report the rape to the police and they have to sign a legal affidavit. And so that, that has meant that women have been traveling off island if they can afford to, to have abortions. What the new law is aiming to do is it will allow abortion on request up to 14 weeks. So that means a woman won't have to give a reason. She won't have to justify it. She can just request it. And only from one doctor, whereas at the moment, as you know, in England, you have to go and see two doctors. And then between 14 and 24 weeks, women will be able to request abortions if they have been raped or if there's a... Um, a fetal abnormality, or, and this is an interesting one, if there are serious social grounds justifying an abortion. It was quite interesting because when Dr. Allenson originally wrote the bill, he came up with a list of social grounds that would qualify. Things like if your partner's diagnosed with a terminal illness, for example, or if you're homeless or if you're suffering from an addiction. We, in our campaign, we felt actually there's an infinite number of reasons why somebody would have serious social reasons. And actually writing a list could be restrictive for some women. You know, you can't possibly cover every, every reason. So probably it's better to just say serious social reasons. And then the woman and her doctor can discuss that and she's got that option available to her if she really feels that that's the best option for her. So that one was one that got a little bit of opposition from people. 
Theoretically, this could go through quite quickly now because the Legislative Council is our upper chamber of Timwald and it technically should just be a scrutinising chamber. So they should just be looking at the bill very much from a legalistic point of view uh, to work out does it fit in with other laws, is there any contradictory language in it, just purely at the, the, the legislation. They're not there to say whether or not it should become law. So hopefully, if they if they stick to their remit, it could go through quickly. In the past, sometimes the Legislative Council has decided to have a little committee that would hold things up, and we really don't feel that this bill needs a committee because what's been really great is it's been discussed, because it was a big deal, it's been discussed down to the nth degree. Every, every line has been read and analysed and reanalysed before it's been voted through the House of Keys. So it's had a lot of thought and consideration already so we're hoping that now it should just be a smooth progression through the legislative council i'm hopeful that maybe it could be by um by our national day which is july the 5th tinwall day that's the day when the government of the isle of man holds an open air sitting of the government i think it's going to make women on the isle of man feel better about how the isle of man feels about them because this law is really saying here you go women we trust you well a tentative Go Isle of Man. Fingers firmly crossed. Somewhere it's not looking quite so bright is Poland. Poland already has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe. Abortion is only allowed if the pregnancy is the result of rape or incest, if the woman's life's in danger or in cases of severe or fatal fetal impairment. The challenge was, and what we saw these mass protests of at the end of March, was that the Polish parliament was considering a bill to add even more restrictions to what is already very limited access. What they were proposing would be to remove severe or fatal fetus impairment from the list of grounds. So what that means in practice, it would make it even more restrictive. And what's really worrying is that the official statistics show that that's exactly the grounds that majority of abortions in Poland are happening. So they're really trying to completely shut down access to sexual reproductive health care for Polish women, which is obviously very concerning. The shining light in all of this has just been to feel the power and the wonder and the strength of the women's movement on the ground in Poland. People came out in their thousands, you know, when this was first proposed last year and then as we saw again at the end of March this year. And I guess the good news is that following that groundswell of support, that activism, thousands marching on the streets, For the moment, the bill has been withdrawn. It's important to mention, too, that this is all happening in the context in Poland of a general crackdown on human rights and that kind of chilling effect that you have when the executive power is willing to just take your rights away from one day to the next. But definitely, uh, when it comes to sexual reproductive health rights, there has just been such a strong women's movement. And I just find the resilience that they're showing is, is really inspiring. That was Amnesty International's Averna McGowan. Women standing together, though, we're all for that. If you haven't already listened to part one of our DocuPod, please do. It explains how Ireland got to this situation in the first place. If you've heard this and you're wondering what you can do to help, first up, got a vote? Use it. Vote yes. And encourage everyone around you to do the same. Call your family members, your friends, your boyfriends and explain why it's so important. You can find out more information about how to go home to vote if you're living outside of Ireland at the London Irish Abortion Rights Campaign site, hometovote.com. 
It's too late to register to vote now, so if you're not registered, you're not Irish, or you've been living outside Ireland for the last 18 months, you can't vote. But you can still help. Donate to the Together for Yes campaign to help them spread the word by visiting www.togetherforyes.ie. Get involved in your local group and, again, the Home to Vote website has more info on this. Chip a fiver or more to the Abortion Support Network to help it continue its vital work. You can do that at www.asn.org.uk. And finally, contact your local political representative and ask them what they're doing to advance women's rights. Standard Issue would like to thank for their time and their efforts in the campaign. Aoife McArdle, Kate O'Connell, Agnes Johnson, Anna McHugh, Claire Hennessy, Mairead Emwright, Mara Clark, Sinead Williams, Sheena Carhill, Gronya Maguire, Ashlyn Cronin, Iverna McGowan and Stephanie Kelsey. You have, of course, been listening to the Standard Issue team, Mickey Noonan, Hannah Dunleavy and Jen Offord. Standard Issue for all women.